We are uh, now in the uh, final sermon in our, my series in the book of Revelation as we continue to uh, talk about revitalization and uh, how the Lord is working in our midst. We are in Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 6 through 21, Revelation chapter 22, sorry, 22 verses 6 through 21, the final chapter of Revelation. If you are able, if you will stand with me in the reading of God's word. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets of all and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong and let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices, practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, as we spend time in your word again this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who is just as present in the writing of these words as you are with us today, we pray that you will write the truths of these words upon our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I heard of a, of a new preacher who was just fresh out of seminary and who was so nervous about delivering his first sermon that he'd gotten almost no sleep the night before. He was so nervous and tired, he barely made it up the steps to the pulpit. Fortunately, he found his text and began preaching. But nervousness soon overtook him and the outline flew right out of his mind. Now, in seminary, 
he was taught a, uh, a simple trick that uh, if you have a lapse of memory, it's wise to repeat your last point. And so he did. He was preaching on this text, so he said, Behold, I come quickly, he said to his congregation. But his mind was still a blank. He tried one more time. Behold, I come quickly, but still nothing. Finally, he stepped way back. Stepped way back. Eh? He made a huge lunge to the pulpit. As he shouted, Behold, I come quickly, he tripped and fell into the lap of a little old lady in the front row. Flustered and embarrassed, he picked himself up, apologized profusely, and started to explain what had happened. That's all right, young man, this kindly old lady said. It was really my fault. You did warn me three times that you were on your way down. <laughs> See, three times in 14 verses, Jesus tells us, Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. I want you to think back with me to Revelation chapter 6, and if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. There, uh, John was shown a vision of the martyred saints of God calling from beneath the altar, how long will you let this persecution go on? See, in that chapter, we looked at the symbolism of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we saw the meaning of those four horsemen was really not a positive one, that they were symbolic for the wars, horrors, and persecution that occur on the earth. We saw really that the four horsemen are riding along the earth today, just as they had been since the time of John. And we saw that this was the normal for our world, and, has it, it's, and the, the way it's been since the time of Christ, and it will be until he comes again in glory. War, persecution, famine, all these are the realities that God allows to accompany the spreading of his word and the building of his church. And in that passage, we did see those Christians who have been martyred for their witness to the grace of God as they cried out to the Lord. And the immediate answer back then was in chapter 6, there is still a full number of your brothers and sisters who are yet to come. In other words, persecution must run its course, but justice will come at the appointed time. And now here in chapter 22, Jesus makes clear we must expect him soon. So here is a, an important point. It's not on your outline yet. I haven't gotten to the outline, but it's an important point that I've made before, and that is we must always live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and will return tomorrow. See, many modern interpretations of the book of Revelation hold that nearly everything in this book is about some distant time and future, and all this book is really for someone else and has nothing to do for, with me or my life. Sadly, that misses a very major point which is emphasized here at the end of Revelation. Let me uh, point out one of the main reasons I believe that those interpretations are, are wrong. Way back in the prophet Daniel's time, God had instructed the prophet Daniel to seal up his prophecy. 
In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we read, But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. And then again in 12.9, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Why? Because the time of the end was still a long time away. But by contrast, Revelation must remain unsealed, as we see here in verse 10. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. And so this is point one on your outline. If uh, you like to keep notes, it's in the middle of your bulletin there. Daniel's prophecies were, be, were to be rolled up and sealed, but John's revelation is to remain unsealed because it is for all God's people in John's day and in ours until Christ returns. See, revelation does address the end. end. And we don't know when that will be. But the point is is that everything is now ready. The main function of Revelation is to remove the veil from our eyes and for us to see the forces behind the events going going on around us today. Events that began in John's time and will continue until the end end. It's really vital for us to grasp because when we do, we can live with urgency and vision. We can live with the vision that God has given us, the Great Commission vision, to love people to real life in Jesus. See, today is the end. That's the point. John's day was the end. And there will be an end end. But now, today, the end is at hand. God has been and is sovereignly ushering in His kingdom. Yeah, I say that uh, three times real fast. Christ's followers have our role, and we must always live as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and will return tomorrow. That kind of urgency. You know, I heard the story of a young lady who was uh, busying herself to get ready for a blind date. It wasn't just a, an ordinary dinner and movie. Her date had planned dinner at a an exclusive downtown restaurant with live music and dancing. And so because she wanted to make a good impression, she'd taken the day off of work. She'd cleaned up her apartment. She went out that afternoon to have her hair done and get a manicure. And when she got home, she did her makeup. She put on her best dress and was ready for her date's arrival. His expected arrival came and went, but she continued to wait patiently. Finally, after waiting over an hour, she decided she'd been stood up. So she took off her dress, let down her hair, put on her pajamas, gathered all her favorite junk food, and sat down to watch TV with her dog. Sometime later, there was a knock at the door. It was her date. He looked at her surprised and said, What? I gave you an extra two hours and you're still not ready to go? I wonder if that's the way we are with Jesus. See, the point of the end of Revelation is that it's time for the sleeper to arise and to remember that this is the end. There is a consistent urgency throughout the New Testament. We have a harvest to gather in. It's no time for sleeping. It's time to invest our gifts, our time, our resources into getting the gospel message out to those around us. 
sitting in church without any active involvement in the purposes of Jesus Christ is really just a form of deception. Let me re-emphasize this point, and this is, by the way, point two on your outline. Sitting in church without any active involvement in the purposes of Jesus Christ is a form of deception. And I have to ask then, are you deceiving yourself? Or believing a lie that says you can be part of God's bride, the church, without being actively involved in God's mission here? See, every one of us has been given the Great Commission. Each and every one of us are called by Jesus to take the glorious message of Jesus Christ and His love to the ends of the earth. Everyone, that's a call for each and every one of us. Every one of us is called to inviting our neighbors in our growing and diverse community to know the light, love, and hope of Christ. That's our mission. People are hungry, waiting for us to take the life-changing message of Jesus to them. He is coming soon. See, Jesus means to instill this urgency in us. You know that? Are you living with this kind of urgency? Do you sense the urgency of what this means? Or have you been lulled to sleep by so much theology that is promulgated today? Let's go back to the text now. And in verse 8, we see John here using his name again at the end of the book, just as he did at the beginning of Revelation. He does this to remind us that it is he who is an eyewitness. It's he who was the eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. He was in the inner circle of Christ's disciples. It is he who was the eyewitness to his crucifixion, his death and resurrection. It's he who witnessed the many of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. And now throughout this book we see that it is John who was witness to the removal of the curtain and to God's working behind the scenes and the events of our world all the way to the end, end. The coming of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, which is the new holy of holies, and our reward of knowing God face to face with no veil. See, that's the truth. And he puts his stamp on it. He, in essence, signs his name to the truth of all of, we've, all of what we've read in Revelation. Nothing is to be added or taken away. No twisting of the truth. He indicates all this to emphasize another important theme that we see highlighted in verse 12, where he says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. See, it is Jesus who is the judge. And this is point three on your outline. Jesus will judge, will be the judge on the final day. See, in Judaism, it's only God who is the ultimate judge. There is no doubt that Jesus is proclaiming that he is God. In Isaiah 40, God promised to come with his reward. And it's here, Jesus, who makes that same promise. In verse 13, we get Christ's deity emphasized in three different ways. He's called first and last, hence equating him with God himself again, as in Isaiah 41, 44, and 48. 
And by saying that he is the beginning and the end, Jesus also reminds us, and this is point four on your outline, that he, Jesus, is the ruler of all history. Just as Jesus created the world, so it is Jesus who will end it. That Jesus is God, that he is the final judge, adds to the urgency of the message because he is the gate. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the water of life that flows from the throne. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And in a pluralistic age, this message is usually not very well received. To tell people that there's only way, one way to eternal life will sometimes be received very badly. But this is and must be our consistent message lived out consistently in our lives in holiness and in purity. Why? Because it's the truth. Telling people that they can get to where they want to go by roads that will never get them there simply because we think it'll be less offensive or will be taken better is really no kindness at all. It's not compassionate to tell people that there exists a wonderful ending to the road they're on simply because it'll make them feel better. It's really a horrible, evil thing if the truth is that the road they're on leads to eternal punishment, judgment, and separation from all love and all kindness. In verse 14, we're called to wash our robes. It's only one place where we're called to wash our robes. Just like the church at Sardis at the beginning of the book which had a reputation for being alive, but was really dead. But even there we saw that there were still a few wearing the robes of righteousness, a few of them still faithful. There were still those there that had refused to compromise with the world. The white robes stand for holiness and purity. And the irony is that the only way to wash their clothes is in the blood of the Lamb which we see in Revelation 7:14, and to be ready for Christ's imminent return. For it's only those who have washed in the blood of the Lamb that will be allowed to share in the tree of life and enter into the gates of the holy city. So how are we to respond now that we've come to the end of Revelation? Well, John gives us two basic responses of God's people. The first is the same response as that of God's Holy Spirit who empowers God's people. The Holy Spirit speaks through Christ's people, his bride. And point five is this on your outline. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are to be about the task of speaking the word of God. Speaking his truth and love. We are the prophetic community. And then he tells us what our message is, right here. Come. Come. It's encapsulated by the mission that God has given us here at Parkway, inviting our neighbors in our growing diverse community to know the light, love, and hope of Christ. See, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, the bride of Christ, invite others to drink deeply from the water of life that flows from the throne of grace. Do you see that here? Let him take the free gift of the water of life. 
And this is point six. That our message is come and share from the tree of life and be part of the community of the holy city. It is a prophetic invitation, an urgent invitation. Come and taste that the Lord is good. This is our message. John wants us to link this back, by the way, to the church, to the letter at the church of Laodicea. Do you remember that church? That was the apathetic church. Here's the point that John wants us to understand. And it's the next point on your outline, seven. The final eminent return of Jesus must shatter our apathy. Jacques Ellul wrote that people today are victims of emptiness, devoid of meaning, busy, but emotionally empty. That is the world we live in. This is the world around us today. People living empty, meaningless lives. And the problem is, is that much of the church in the Western world is apathetic about this. Much of the church in America today is busy worrying about all kinds of things. Politics, using the political process to create what they believe will be a nicer, wealthier, more comfortable and safer world for themselves and and their progeny. Now, that's not a bad goal. But that's not the primary purpose. Our primary purpose is is that we have been placed in at this time is to be about the task of inviting. Come, drink deeply from the water of life that flows from the throne of grace. Come and receive forgiveness and mercy. We are on a mission. And that mission field is in our backyards. It's our mission here at Parkway. It's always on the front of your bulletin, by the way. Inviting neighbors to our, in our growing, diverse community to know the light, love, and hope of Christ. See, our call is the gospel. It's a call to continuously, through word and deed, be about the task of offering the gospel. Our call is to be ambassadors for Christ, that Christ may make his appeal through us. Come. That needs to be our plea with all those around us. So let me make this even more personal. When was the last time you invited others to come? When was the last time? Come to my home and let me share the love I've come to know in Jesus Christ. Come to our church and let us show you true Christian love, acceptance, and hospitality. Come. When was the last time you invited someone to come to church with you? Which brings me to that insert in your bulletin on the uh, life groups. And uh, I want you to take a little time here, the rest of the service, and fill that out. I want you to think about uh, what this message means. Being a part of a life community, a small group that meets in our homes and maybe in the church as well. And it's a wonderful place to invite people to come, to show them hospitality, to show them the love of Christ. Matthew has uh, been tasked with getting our small group ministries back up and running. Why? So that each of us can get back to the task of inviting others around us to join in drinking deeply from the fountain of life. Now there's also a flip side, as we see here in this text. The curses. 
to those who try to change the book or twist the message. Moses gave a very similar warning to his hearers in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, where he writes, Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. See, John is here echoing from Deuteronomy and including the curses from Deuteronomy, the covenant curses, because God takes Scripture twisting very seriously. And so we, therefore, must make it our part of our lives to be diligently pursuing and correcting our understanding of God's Word so that we can rightly communicate God's truth. And it is our Christian education programs on Sunday morning and, and the development of these small groups that will give us opportunities of growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word. It's an important part of discipleship, aligning our understanding of the Word of God to the truth and living out those truths every day. Let me give you a couple of examples of Scripture twisting. I could have chosen any of thousands of them. Let me just give you one or two here. Jehovah's Witnesses, translate. you might have had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door and knock on it. And one of the first things they do is they pull out their Bibles and look at John 1.1, and they translate it this way. In the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Making it seem as if Jesus was simply one of multiple gods. It's a twisting of one of the basic rules of the Greek language, which I learned in my first semester of Greek. Mormon missionaries quote James 1.5, which promises God's wisdom to those who ask him, and they follow this by explaining that when Joseph Smith did this, he was given a revelation from which he concluded God the Father has a physical body, thereby adding further revelation above God's word. And also, by the way, taking that verse way out of context. The stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph in Ezekiel 37 are interpreted by Mormons to mean the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Once again, taking Scripture out of context and twisting it to mean what they wish. See, there's great danger with this kind of Scripture twisting that ultimately results in the opposite of the Gospel. Know the Word that you might be prepared to understand the Scripture twisting that is so prevalent in our day. All you have to do is Google something on your internet today and you get all kinds of odd translations and interpretations. And so we need to be prepared. Prepared to present the truth of the gospel. And there's another important application for us here. See, this section emphasizes that God's promises are trustworthy and true and that he will fulfill them. And so this is point eight on your outline. God's entire purpose in history is reliable. I'll be talking a whole lot more about this in our next series as I'll be going through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament and the letters of Peter. See, we may not live to see every fulfillment even of what God has called us to do in this life. Abraham, Jeremiah, Paul, they did not. But God ultimately fulfilled his good words, nevertheless. See, God will fulfill all he has promised in his time. 
and holding on to those promises empowers us to remain faithful in the present tasks he has given us as we bear in mind their ultimate eternal significance. See, we have a foretaste now of God's promises in the Spirit, and we will have them full, in full, very soon. Now let's step back. See, this amazing book started on a hot, barren prison island called Patmos, where the Apostle John was exiled because of his faith in Jesus. The book began on a prison island, but it didn't stay there for very long. The curtain was pulled back. The book explained the reasons for wars and famines. And we've seen that God remains sovereign even in the midst of the suffering of his people. We were given a picture of two very different women. One symbolized the people of God from whom the Savior comes, Jesus given to his people, and another woman, the harlot Babylon. We saw the dragon Satan, that he is unbound for this short time to rage on the earth. And we saw that Satan works through his two agents, the beast of the sea, who's predominantly political in nature, antichrist, those who oppose God's people, that these antichrists are national and political leaders, Caesars, tyrants, kings, even political systems and ideologies that stood or stand opposed to Jesus and to the building of his kingdom. Then there's the second beast from the earth, which is false prophets, lies and deceptions, false religions, cults and other deceptions that might even lead the elect astray from the truth. Satan is raging today, but God hedges him in. Satan is allowed to rage. He is at work through his agents today, especially in the political realm and the ideologies of this world, but also in the deceptions and lies all around us, all the false religions, and even the corruption of the Christian faith in so many circles. Then the scene shifted to the song of the redeemed that rings out even in the midst of persecution and martyrdom, even in the midst of Satan's rage. We saw this song of the redeemed must be the constant message of our being and our lives. It is our identity. We are the redeemed, and as redeemed, we sing a song of redemption always and to everyone. We saw that this is the opposite of the next picture, to the lament over Babylon and the systems and values of this world, the materialism that corrupts the human soul. Then the vision shifted to the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life experience the constant, full, unencumbered, face-to-face presence of God in all his glory and majesty and holiness. From a prison island to the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is where our heart is to be. This is where our passions are to reside. This is the vision we're given that we might invest all that we are and all that we have, all our treasures and all our heart. Now let me uh, pause here for a moment and make a confession. I enjoy sci-fi, fantasy books and movies. I've read thousands of them. In the... uh, And that genre of literature and movies are some that address this theme of revelation. 
the end times, the apocalypse. I find uh, most of those books and movies that include an apocalyptic theme to be the opposite of the end of this message of Revelation. See, in most of those movies and books, as things get bad and people realize that the end is coming, what do they do? They work at stopping that end or somehow delaying it. See, we in the Western world in America have created for ourselves a kind of heaven on earth, a heaven of ease and comfort, wealth and luxury, and we don't want that to come to an end. We have laid our treasures here on earth. We've been busy investing in this world, and we want to hold on to those treasures for as long as possible. See, John's revelation calls for a completely different response from his people. We're never to have the attitude, oh, wait, wait, please wait a while, Lord, until I've completed all those things on my bucket list. Let me just have a few more months, a few more years. No, Christ says to us, behold, I am coming quickly. And what is the response of his people? You see it here? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, it's Aramaic for come, O Lord. See, Paul uses this same term in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. It was the longing in the heart of the early Christians, a longing that came from a real love for Jesus. Is this the longing of your heart? See, if you've been building your treasures in heaven and you truly are passionately looking forward to the time of complete holiness and being in the full presence of our Holy Lamb, the cry of our heart will be Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. So I ask you to live in that eager anticipation of his coming because we must always live as if Christ died yesterday rose today, and will return tomorrow. Let's pray together.